There's nothing that compares to a parent's love. A loving parent will do anything to help save their child. It doesn't matter the cost. It doesn't matter the sacrifice. If you have your Bibles, open them up to John chapter 4. John Crowley had two young children, Megan and Patrick, who were diagnosed with a very rare neuromuscular disease called POMP disease. The disease was considered a a death sentence. John Crowley ended up giving up his entire life to pursue a cure for his children. John Crowley's story caught the attention of a news columnist who wrote about it. She wrote, seeking medical treatment, Mr. Crowley quit his job as a financial consultant. He met with legions of scientists and teamed up with one of them. He borrowed $100,000 on his home and 401k plan to start a biotech company. He then raised $27 million in venture capital when the company developed an enzyme that showed early promise. When he thought he needed the muscle of a big company to get the drug into production and testing, he sold the company to Genzyme Corporation of Cambridge, Massachusetts for $137.5 million. His story takes a lot of peaks and valleys, highs and lows, but it ends with John Crowley getting the needed medication to his children. Having saved their lives, his new mission is to find a medication that works even better, as well as to help families find medications to treat other rare diseases. I know that we have parents in this church, like Jake and Kristen Pegg, like some of you who are or who have been in similar situations, and I know that you've done whatever it takes to make your child better. As parents, we will sacrifice anything if it means saving our children. And in today's text, we find a father who finds himself in that same position. John chapter four, we're gonna begin reading in verse 46. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Once more, he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, sir, come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, Yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. This was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Faith is central to all of life. Let me give you an example. My guess is you have gone to a doctor before whose name you can't pronounce, whose medical degrees you've never verified. He then gives you a prescription that you can't read. You take it to a pharmacist that you've never seen before. He gives you a chemical compound that you don't understand. You then go home and you take the pill or medicine according to his instructions. Throughout this entire time, you are putting faith and trusting in others. Now, we know, of course, that faith is only as good as the person we place it in. 
And that's why we go to a reputable doctor and pharmacist rather than just the first person we find on the internet. In our text today, we find a man who moves from what we might call a flimsy faith to a firm faith. He moves from panic to peace as he rests upon the power and protection of Jesus. The great English preacher Charles Spurgeon said that this passage in John chapter 4 demonstrates the rise and progress of faith in the soul. In this story, we see both the greatness of Jesus Christ and the development of man's faith in him. Scholar Warren Wearsby offers a helpful outline that will guide our study this morning. We see the development of faith, and it begins first with crisis faith. A crisis faith is the kind of faith we have when, when something happens suddenly to us. We, we get blindsided. We weren't expecting it. it. It unsettles us. It's when a life storm throws us into the critical tailspin of crisis. It's a crisis faith. Our text says in verse 46 that there's a man who has a son who's sick. This is his crisis. The man is described as a royal official. Now, the word royal official is translated from the Greek word basilikos. Maybe you've heard of the word basilica. It's another word for a medieval church or a medieval place of worship. But that original word basilikos means one who belongs to a king. So this royal official, this basilikos, is one who belonged to a king. Which king? Most likely it was Herod Antipas. Now, if you remember the Christmas story, you know that Herod the Great was the villain of the story. He ruled all of Judea. He lived down in the south in Jerusalem. He was the one responsible for rebuilding the, the temple in, in Jerusalem. If you'll remember, Herod the Great was the one who ordered the slaughter of all boys two, two years old and younger. So, so this Herod the Great, he has now died. And his territory is divided up amongst his sons. And his son, Herod Antipas, rules the area in the north of Galilee where this sign takes place. So this royal official probably worked for Herod Antipas. And in this position, he would have had great status and great influence. He would have been a man of considerable wealth. He would have been the envy of many people. And he probably had everything he needed to live a very comfortable life. And yet, he had a need that his position and his money could not meet. The royal official travels from Capernaum to Cana in order to see Jesus. If you remember from last week, Cana was the town where Jesus performed his first sign, his first miracle of turning water into wine. The, the first miracle came at the request of Jesus' mother Mary. The second miracle at Cana comes at the request of a desperate father. We read in verse 47, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. The tense of this verb is translated as such that it's a repeated request. This is something that he's asked for more than once. It's, it's something like, Jesus, please, please come down to, to Capernaum. My, my son is at the point of death. Please, please come down here. There's no doubt that he has tried every solution that money could buy. But how many of you know that there are many needs and many problems that money can't solve? Money can buy medicine. Money can hire doctors. Money can buy the very best health care. 
But money cannot buy you life and death. We know this because many of us, we've stood next to a loved one dying. Many of us have heard those words, I'm sorry. There's nothing more we can do. There's a point where doctors and medicines can no longer help. This royal official, this father, he faced a crisis. He was willing to do anything that might restore his son to health, but for him, the situation seemed hopeless. You may be rich, you may be poor, but the reality is you live in a fallen world. And as long as you have people in your life and family in your house, you're going to face some of the same problems that this royal official did. We're told the royal official begged him to come and heal his son. Can't you just feel the sadness and despair? This father traveled 20 miles to get to Jesus, but it didn't matter the distance. He would have traveled 200 miles or 2,000 miles if it meant that there was a hope for finding a cure for his son. I think it's important to note that this man came by himself. He he didn't send his servants. I don't know, maybe he thought that his, his position would have some sort of influence on Jesus. But you know that social position and wealth never impressed Jesus. What Jesus always looked for in people was faith. Jesus time and time again would commend people or rebuke people on the basis of what? Faith. Martin Luther once said, God our Father has made all things depend on faith, so that whoever has faith has everything, and whoever does not have faith has nothing. This royal official came not giving orders, no. He came to Jesus in humility. Here's a man who's a part of the ruling class, a somebody, but he humbled himself as a nobody and came to Jesus. If you ever go to Israel, one of the places you can visit is the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem. It's built over the site that is traditionally considered to mark the birthplace of Jesus. And what's interesting is the door to mark the entrance of the Church of the Nativity is very small. It's only about four feet tall and two feet wide. Now, it was built in ancient times as a small entrance to keep people from driving their cars or riding their horses through the entrance to this church. These days, they don't have to worry about that. However, the tiny door still helps to keep something else from entering the spot where Jesus was born, our own pride and egos. Today, the main entrance to the church is called the door of humility because when you pass through it, you have to bow down to enter. Anybody who comes to Jesus must come humbly. James chapter 4, verse 6 says, God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. The father in this story had to swallow his pride. You see, pride makes us self-sufficient. Pride says, I can do this. I can manage. I'm okay. But the posture of humility says, I can't do this on my own. I need help. The father who had a good position in society, this man who was always self-reliant, he had to admit before others that he was powerless to help his son. This man of of wealth and status had to go to a simple carpenter turned preacher for help. You can imagine how some of the crowd would have looked at this powerful man, like, really? You're, You're doing this? 
But this father didn't care. He was willing to lose his reputation so that he might win the favor of God. You and I, too, can come to Jesus for help. But like the father in this story, we must come humbly. The place to start is always to admit our need, to admit, confess, repent of our sins, and you will experience that God gives grace to the humble. Verse 48 continues, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. Sir Walter Raleigh was an English statesman, scholar, writer, and explorer. He was one of the most notable figures of the Elizabethan era. One time he made a request of the king, and she reluctantly answered, Raleigh, when will you ever stop begging? Sir Walter Raleigh replied, when your majesty stops giving. His request was granted. Listen, church, I believe the God of grace never grows weary of our asking. He never rebukes us for coming to him. Notice in this verse that Jesus doesn't rebuke the man, but he rebukes the crowd. He addresses the wider audience when he says, you people. Jesus is mildly rebuking those who see him as nothing more than a miracle worker. Those who were so fascinated with the signs rather than the one to whom the signs pointed. As we go through the book of John, what we need to keep in mind is that signs are pointers to something else. Jesus performed many signs and wonders, but no sign was ever meant to be an end in and of itself. Signs were pointers to the greater thing behind the sign. The sign was meant to point to Jesus so that people would love Jesus and trust in Jesus rather than love the miracles and the wonders. So yes, let the miracle lead you to believe. Don't just stop at the miracle. The miracles are simply signposts pointing the way to the Messiah. The miracle itself is not the end. It is a means. So verse 49 says, the royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. This is faith in crisis, but at least it's faith. The royal, royal official doesn't deny that Jesus is a miracle worker. He doesn't argue the point. He simply repeats his request. He says, come down before my child dies. You can hear how this request is becoming more urgent. In the narrative, he uses a different word now for his son. This time, he refers to him as my child or my little boy. You get the impression that this child is his whole world. This official has faith. He believes that Jesus could heal his son, but I think his thinking is a little bit flawed. The, the first mistake he makes is thinking that Jesus had to go to Capernaum to heal his son. The second mistake is he thinks that if the boy died before he arrived, that it would be too late. His faith is small, but how many of you know that a little faith in the right source can produce incredible results? The royal official asked Jesus to come. Jesus unexpectedly tells him to go. These are two contrasting words, especially for kids. Come and go. We like the word come. Come and join us. Come on over. Come and get something to eat. We don't like the word go. Go away. Go to your room. Go wash your hands. Go to bed. 
the royal official asks Jesus to come, but in response, Jesus tells him to go. Verse 50, go, your son will live. Notice that, that Jesus will help this man, but in helping, he refuses to go with him. Jesus is determined to do a miracle that's not going to draw attention to himself. The crowds find this completely disappointing because they're not going to get to see a show. And for the royal official, his faith is about to be fully stretched because Jesus doesn't give this man a sign. He just gives him his word. And so we see this story develop from a crisis faith, secondly, to a confident faith. Verse 50 tells us, the man took Jesus at his word and departed. There was a man who was lost in the desert, and he was near death for a lack of water. Soon, he came across a pump with a canteen hung on the handle with a note attached to it. The note said, below you is all the fresh water you could ever need, and the canteen contains exactly enough water to prime the pump. It takes confident faith to pour out the entire canteen for the promise of unlimited water. What would you do? Would you drink the limited supply in the canteen, or would you trust the instructions for unlimited water? When Jesus said, go, your son will live, Scripture says the man took Jesus at his word and departed. That's confident faith. And I just think about how many times I failed to do that. I think about all the times that, that I've trusted in my word over his word. Where I believe the word of others over God's word. Or, or I ignore his word. I, I pretend I don't hear his word or, or that it doesn't apply to my situation. Or I forget his word. Or I'm too busy to listen to his word. I'm too distracted. But by going home, this man demonstrates that he's not at all like those who needed to see signs and wonders first before believing. He doesn't need to see the fireworks of, of miracles and wonders. No, he, he doesn't need to see the sign. Why? Because he believes in the one to whom the sign points. He believes in Jesus. He believes the word that Jesus spoke to him. It's confident faith. Listen, everyone has faith in someone or something. A skeptic may, may tell you that, you know, Christianity is just a crutch for you. You know, that, that's all it is, that, that your faith is a crutch that you're holding on to the same way that, that a man with a broken leg leans on a crutch. And there's truth in that statement. But listen, I am not ashamed, I am not embarrassed to admit at all that Jesus is a crutch in my life. That I am leaning very hard on Jesus. You know Why? Because every single one of us are broken and we're leaning on the everlasting arms of Jesus. So if somebody ever tells you, oh man, your, your faith is just a crutch, I would just simply turn the question around to them and ask them, what are you leaning on? What are you leaning on? Are you leaning on your own flawed reasoning? Are you leaning on your own strength, your own talents, your own skills? Or are you leaning on something else? We're all leaning upon someone or something. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. Take Jesus at his word and go. Confident faith. 
So we see crisis faith that moves to confident faith. Third, notice that it leads to confirmed faith. Verse 51 says, while he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was still living. Can you imagine the excitement of these servants? They can't wait for the official to come home to Capernaum, so they get on the road to meet him and they give him the news, your boy's alive. Now watch this as the official's faith, his confident faith in the word of Jesus is confirmed. Verse 52, when he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. This man asked the servants when his son began to to get better, and they answered, yesterday at 1 p.m. And the man thinks to himself, yesterday, 1 p.m. Yes, that is exactly the time when Jesus said the words to me, go, your son will live. 1 p.m., right on the dot. I'm also struck by the growing peace of this man after his encounter with Jesus. Do you notice at the beginning of the story that he's running desperately to Jesus And now he's walking peacefully home. Depending on the route taken, the distance from Cana to Capernaum is between 16 and 23 miles. So it's possible that that in a, a worried state for his son, if he would have left at the moment that Jesus told him, go, your son will live, it's possible that he could have got home very late that evening. But that's not what we read. We read that when the servants meet up with the official, they tell him that his son began to get better yesterday at one in the afternoon. Yesterday. Do you know what that means? It means that this royal official had to spend the night somewhere. He checked into the local Hampton Inn. He got an Airbnb. He went to sleep that night not having a visible answer that his son was healed. Remember, this is the day before cell phones. No texting, no email, no social media. How do you think he slept that night? Do you think he tossed and turned, wondering if his child was dead? I'll tell you, based on the development of this story, I believe that he slept safe and sound because he believed the word that Jesus had spoken to him. Confident, confirmed faith moves one from panic to peace. This leads, fourthly, to contagious faith. We read in the second part of verse 53, so he and his whole household obeyed, believed. They believed. Our mission here at at Bachelor Creek is making and growing disciples of Jesus. We want to reach men and women, boys and girls, with the gospel of Jesus Christ and see them grow and develop in their faith. We want that for all people. But I'll tell you what, we are passionate and wanting to see men and fathers come to faith in Christ. Because when a dad encounters Christ and believes, it changes the whole family. There was a study that was published in 2000 by the Swiss government that revealed some astonishing facts about the passing of faith and values onto others. This is what the study stated. It is the religious practice of the father of the family that above all determines the future attendance at or absence from church of the children. To summarize this study, it showed that if a father doesn't go to church, it doesn't matter how faithful his wife is, only one child in 50 will become a regular worshiper. 
one child in 50. But if the father attends church regularly, regardless of the practice of the mother, then between two-thirds and three-quarters of their children will become regular worshipers. Don't ever underestimate the influence of a father. As the spiritual leader of his home, this official believed Jesus. And God graced the entire family with saving faith in Christ. The Christian faith is a contagious faith. You see, if our faith is real, then others start to become interested in what we have. If our faith is genuine, then it impacts others. That doesn't mean that every person's going to get saved and follow Christ like we have. But if our faith is authentic, then there's a quality about it that inspires faith in others. Years ago, you might remember there was a Mercedes-Benz commercial that showed a car colliding with a cement wall during a safety test. And in the commercial, someone asked the company spokesman why they don't enforce the Mercedes-Benz energy-absorbing car uh, car body-absorbing patent, why they don't enforce that on other companies. Evidently, other companies had had copied this design. And and the the spokesman just replies matter-of-factly, because some things in life are too important not to share. Isn't that so true? Because some things in life are too important not to share. Church, we have the greatest news this world has ever been given, and we cannot keep it to ourselves. So as we wrap up today, I want to leave you with two takeaways. First, God often uses problems to point us to Jesus. Think about this. What if the official son had not gotten sick? Where would the official be? Wouldn't he just be going about his business as as a royal official, working in the king's government as a lost man? A wealthy man, a royal man, but a lost man without Jesus. Commenting on this story, Charles Spurgeon says, Had he been without trial, he might have lived forgetful of his God and Savior. But sorrow came to his house, and it was God's angel in disguise. Sorrows and trials are often a grace of God. God uses pain to point us to himself. C.S. Lewis says that God speaks to us in our health, but he shouts at us in our pain. It was a crisis in this man's life, a a sick son that led him to directly encounter Jesus. And his encounter with Jesus changed everything. But what if Jesus had not healed the official son? What if the boy died? Surely this father would have grieved as much as you or I would have grieved. And perhaps you've experienced similar grief. We know that that death brings pain to loved ones and friends, especially when it seems so sudden, especially when it's unexpected, especially when we think that it comes too soon. It, it, It rattles us. It unsettles us. It hurts us. But even when we find ourselves in those positions, we must do as this royal official did. We must go to Jesus. We must take our crisis to the one who always does right. We must take our crisis to the good shepherd who has knowledge that we don't have. The one who is fulfilling a perfect plan for our good, for the good of others, and for the glory of God. 
We must go to the one who turns panic into peace. The second takeaway, true faith takes us from panic to peace. Finding ourselves in a crisis from time to time is a, bri- is a byproduct of living in a fallen and sinful world. It's been said before, and you can probably attest to this, we're all in a storm, or we've just gotten out of a storm, or we're getting ready to head into a storm, and that's just the way that it is. But as Christians, we can take our concerns to Jesus, and we can leave them with him. And when we do that in faith, we can have peace. This official took Jesus at his word. He believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went on his way. He didn't fret about anxiously. He simply trusted. You know, it is not always God's will to heal of sickness. Yes, this official's son got well, but at some point down the road later in his life, he got sick again and died. It's been said before that true faith is accepting whatever God gives us. And I agree. But we must believe in the character and the integrity of God, that he is a God who always does right every time without exception. Our responsibility is to take our concerns to him in prayer, and when we do that faithfully, No matter how he chooses to answer our prayers, we can have peace. It's promised to us. Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The old hymn sings it this way. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrow like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Would you pray with me? Father, we come today seeking the peace that only you can give, a peace that that is ours through faith in Jesus Christ. God, I, I pray that we would, we would realize that, that the signs that you show us are not ends and of themselves, but God, they are pointers. They're pointers to you, to your goodness, to your grace. God, I pray that our love for you would, would grow deeper and deeper as we see that everything points to you. God, that this whole life is about you, about worshiping you, about being in relationship with you. God, we thank you for the healings that we experience in this life. God, for the the many testimonies that we share of how you have intervened in our life and we give you glory for that. But God, most of all, we're thankful for the eternal healing that you've given our hearts. God, the greatest disease that we've ever been stricken with is sin. And you have provided a way through Jesus. And if there's anybody here today who has not put their faith and trust in Jesus to save them from their sins, to give them the gift of eternal life. God, I pray today would be the day that they say, I want to put my faith in Jesus. I want to become a Christian. And God, I pray that all of us would look at the signs and we would look beyond the signs to what they're pointing to. And I pray that our lives would be focused on you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.